0: Chris Hewitt, and welcome to the latest in our series of Spoiler Special Podcasts, and this one, now that cinemas have reopened, (laughs) I'm recording this before (laughs) the impromptu 5pm press conference called by Boris Johnson on Friday, so in theory, cinemas have reopened, and if cinemas have reopened by the time you're listening to this, then it means you can go and see one of the best films of the year in cinemas. It is Darius Martyr's Sound of Metal, fantastic drama about a drummer in a metal band, or metal duo if you will, who loses his hearing suddenly and shockingly and struggles to come to terms with that. Uh, fantastic performances, Oscar nominated by Riz Ahmed and Paul Racy, and Olivia Cooke's fantastic in the movie as well, as is Matthew Almerich. It's a wonderful, wonderful movie, It is weirdly only Darius Marder's second film and it comes some years after his first, which was a documentary called Loot, which is also I think on Amazon Prime, as indeed is Sound of Metal, so if you fancy checking that out then you can do a Darius Marder double bill. Very, very exciting stuff. It's great, great film. I love this movie to bits and I'm delighted that joining me for this podcast to talk about it, talk about Sound of Metal, our two colleagues of such lethal cunning. We have Helen O'Hara. Hello. And Amon Warman. Hello. How are you both? Good.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good.
0: <laughs> That's the <a> spirit. I'll show them the old Dunkirk spirit up and at him. <laughs> We'll fight them on the beaches and all that sort of stuff. Well yeah. if
2: I have a minute, we'll see.
0: But before we get into this movie, and you can just hear them, they're jumping a the bit. They're jumping a the bit to talk about the sound of metal. <laughs> love this movie. It is a great movie. It's an great awesome movie. movie. Yeah. And why do they I just called it the sound of metal. That's how much I love it. Uh, it's called Sound <laughs> the of Metal.
2: Are alive. <laughs> With the sound
0: of metal. <laughs> Very serious conversation about a very serious movie, by the way. Uh, You're about to hear my interview with the film's writer, director, Darius Marder. He is an amazing talker. I don't know if you've heard him before. He's been on the Empire podcast uh, before. And this guy can talk and talk and talk, which is the sort of thing I love on these supported specials. So we get right into it. Pretty much from the off, we get into the the movie's ending, the, you know, the movie's beginning, how he shaped it, how he sculpted it, how he sculpted the journey of Ruben, the character played in the movie by Riz Ahmed. I had an absolute blast talking to Darius uh, about this movie. He was extraordinarily generous with his time, despite the fact that he was about to head to the airport to fly to England, to fly to London, actually, to shoot something. So I want to thank him for being so generous with his time and with his answers. He's an incredible talker, which meant that I barely got through half of my questions. But, you know, maybe another time. I should also point out as well that he has his own microphone. He had a lapel mic, which he very generously and graciously offered to use. So now and again, that was rubbing on his shirt. So you'll hear a little rustling from him every now and again. But hopefully it won't be too distracting. Anyway. Oh, I should also point out as well that there is a little overlap with an excerpt of this that I put into the regular pod a couple of weeks ago, but not too much, maybe a couple of minutes, maybe four to five minutes at most. Otherwise, the rest of it is all brand new spoiler special material. So here it is, me talking to Darius Martyr. Do please enjoy. We're delighted to be joined on this very, very special Sound of Metal podcast by the film's writer and director, Darius Martyr. How are you, sir?
3: I'm very well. I'm very well. It's nice to see you. I
0: always like to start these things with the big question on everybody's lips after they've seen Sound of Metal. And it is overwhelmingly Blackgammon. Where did that band name come
3: from? (laughs) Well, I made... Riz and Olivia came up with that name and we, we did a lot of work. You know what's interesting, Chris? Mm-hmm. You know, I have done so many interviews, so many interviews, and nobody's asked me that. <laughs> I just realized as you asked it, I was like, that's a question I haven't answered, which is strange. You would think that would have come up. See, um, uh, is it,
0: does that make me a genius? I think it does.
3: I'm I'm just going to give you some credit right off the bat, and then later I'll tear you down. <laughs> no, but like absolutely. right up there.
0: <laughs> the ones I'm about to ask you hackneyed.
3: Yes, exactly. I'm gonna I'm gonna look back at this as the one moment that we had a fresh <laughs> question. No, I'm kidding. No, the the uh, Blackman Blackman was this process of you know ba- basically building up the whole relationship, the entire backstory of of Ruben and Lou, which I really put to Riz and Olivia. We, we spent a lot of time talking about their, their past and how they met. And we, they came to this idea that they would play, you know, they met in recovery and that they would play um, backgammon together. And then Riz, who, who's very much into puns, had this whole idea that their band was a name that really annoyed Lou you know like she she would get like lovingly annoyed at his puns but also it was a play on you know uh, on their on their act on the actual forming of their connection which was very much mired in pain yes um so it was the it was the game that they played that connected them and kind of pulled them out of this kind of spiraling darkness and they actually had in that airstream they have a black ammon game built in between the two seats if you ever find ah. like yourself you know so actually we have like you know and it's just their their little like silly thing that they do on the road where they'll stop and play a a, a backgammon game, and game. <laughs> but uh yeah it's it's <laughs> it was really fun to come to it and they they batted around all sorts of things but you know I also you know, had a kind of rule with them that if, if something in, if something came, I wasn't going to get in the way of it. You know, I was going to support that kind of exploration and that journey. And that's, that's what came up.
0: So in, in terms of the, the writing process, I know this was a long writing process for, for your, your, and your brother Abraham. And in terms of that backstory, forming that backstory for, for Ruben and Lou, how difficult was that? Because within that backstory is, Lou's relationship with her father, who is, of course, rich and could easily have paid for, if things had been different, Reuben's surgery. Uh, within that, of course, is then the, the impetus for Ruben to go to Paris at the end of the movie. How much of that came organically? How much of that did you have to, to really work for in terms of setting that up?
3: Man, we really had to work for that. You know, the forming of the character of Lou took a long, long time and my brother and i spent we actually probably wrote more pages on lou than reuben um it was so important that that engine of the story and that kind of connection to each other made some sense and was interesting and was really really kind of humming as an as this kind of a story engine and so that a lot of things informed that final choice to, to dig into that particular backstory for Lou. Um, and it, it was a fascinating journey to get there. I mean, we, we wrote, we wrote so many pages of Lou before we got there, but we found this wonderful inspiration in her father and uh, that kind of i think we found uh, we really drew from our own grandfather actually and a Mm -hmm. relationship with um uh which had nothing to do with wealth he wasn't wealthy at all but it had to do with creative kind of manic intensity and and the relationship of two artists that lou was the product of uh of of that relationship and she she had to kind of, she fled with her mother. Her mother kind of pulled her out of that in a moment of trauma when she was quite young. And when I say trauma, it was, it was dr- maybe more drama than trauma mm-hmm. um, for her mother. But she was pulled away from her father and her mother ended up um, taking her own life. Um, but, but, you know, when she took her own life, there was the suggestion of maybe wanting Lou to come with her. You know, again, none of this is on the page, but it's all very well understood. Mm-hmm. So and this was this was this came actually from a uh, the story of a person I know who who had experienced this. And what I noticed and was really fascinated with and and really moved by is the way in which when when a, when something happens like that, you when you have a kind of narcissist for a mother and you're an only daughter, you You struggle with the ability to be alive, you know how do i how can I be on this earth? And I think that's entirely what Lou is dealing with is how how am I allowed to be on this earth? Um, mm. And music, the playing of music on the stage for her was that was the place she was allowed to be, but it was also almost an exorcism. She was wearing the dress that her mother wore when she died. It was this very, very dark and cathartic experience every night but it was her trying to work her way through that pain Mm. and that and that paradox Mm. of of how you how you can live when um you, you when you are the survivor and she didn't really feel like she should be allowed to live so that's why she's a cutter you know she's trying to feel she's trying to feel that life and it was interesting how much specific backstory we built for Lou and how much never explicitly hits the page um but I I always feel I always feel it you know I, it's all there and her father was very much like a Serge Gainsbourg kind of a uh a, a creation and and kind of riffing on that riffing on um That word riffing, but like I, Mm. I actually met Charlotte Gainsbourg and found my uh, years, years back, and found myself thinking about that family family dynamic a lot, Mm. and, and and slowly this permeation of French culture became like the one culture that really felt like felt right for this character, which is to say, you know, French culture is kind of unlike any. Like, who would be that kind of magnetic persona of a father? that would you know for Lou, it, it couldn't be that she had a rich dad and she could call him and get money this was the last place on earth she wanted to go mm-hmm. you know and that's a, that was in earlier drafts we had much more exploration of that moment we just it was even in the draft we just cut it down ultimately but that was the last place on earth she wanted to go that was the place that she was hiding from with ruben you know is going is dealing with her father is dealing with her past at all you know and so that that became this wonderful uh crossroads for both of them i mean and that's i i actually wrote that whole story going back my brother and i going back to europe because it was as interesting you know uh, psychologically
0: it's fascinating as well because obviously the film loxus i'm not sure i've seen it a a few times now but i'm not sure that there's a scene in which Ruben's not present. So, I, I, I yeah. So, we're we're locked into his POV from the first shot to the last shot. But did you explore at any point? Did you consider, uh, going off and seeing what hap- what, was, what was happening to Lou? It's whenever we, beginning. whenever we see her to be at the end of the film, it's such a marked change from when we've last, when we last saw her in the film.
3: Well, well. Well, first of all, we began cross-cutting a lot with those two. You know Her story was so important to us, and but it, that was way early in the process. You know, we tried it, we worked with it. What was it to crosscut? And, and I found myself, both of us, you know, realizing that you can't have a first-person perspective that's not committed. I mean it's just what it is and if you don't commit to that perspective you don't have the effect that the movie has which is this kind of hyper empathy machine you you can't have it both ways yeah and and it's a very very rare thing to have a first person perspective in a film it mm-hmm. it almost never happens especially when it's committed it was a very interesting process of committing and recommitting you know because the the temptation to to move the camera even subtly toward lou as the focal point it was so great all the time you kind of want to you want that relief you know in in a story or a movie you want to just go oh god can i just go to the b plot or can i just cross cut and in this one it needed to be relentless and and that was so we, we had to kill a lot of darlings in order to do that And i but i will tell you i i very much entertained. The idea of shooting an entirely uh, parallel film, with so that basically a film that that splits when when they you know might begin with the cab with, right when they separate in the beginning of the movie and plays out Lou's whole journey until Ruben shows up, and you know because it was so interesting to both of us, uh, my brother and I, yeah, and but it needed its own movie. You can't yeah. tell this. You cannot tell this story in a non-committed language. It has to be a first-person perspective. And even so much that I recut the film after Toronto, after we premiered, because I was sitting in Toronto and, you know, Mikkel, who's just my wonderful editor, so incredible. We both had this experience a little bit where he realized there were a couple moments in the film that slightly deviated you know, where you were slightly in lose perspective Mm. and it really hurt the movie. It really, it really, it was a, it violated our language a little bit, even, even though what you got from it seemed like it was working, you, you had to really stick to this uh, Mm. perspective. It was very important for the ultimate feeling of the movie.
0: And speaking of locking us into Ruben's perspective, uh, I wanted to talk about the opening and closing shots. Uh, we spoke about this a little bit last time, but we couldn't go into the significance of the last shot in particular. And you know, the, the entire movie is about Ruben straining for that moment of stillness. He doesn't know that he's straining for it, but but he is ultimately. And uh, I'm I, I love. Circularity in films. Mm-hmm. I love when a closing shot echoes a, an opening shot. Um, but I also know that that nailing the ending of this movie wasn't necessarily a walk in the park for you. So um, that that wasn't the plan all all along, was it? To have the to have that moment of stillness at the end, show how far Rubens come from the beginning.
3: Well, it wasn't an ending that I knew when I began the project. Put it that way. Yeah. I, it, it was certainly intact. You know there was a moment where we broke that script where we understood the ending and 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 it never changed from that point so you know it wasn't like something we just figured out before we shot you know that (laughs) ending was had been intact for years and years okay and 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 it was very important that because the entire process was about earning that ending the entire process of making the movie about the sound design, everything was about emotionally earning that ending. Um, It was such a, it was such a wonderfully high bar because the ending is the removal of everything. You know, it's Mm -hmm. very simple. In fact, it's the, it it it's the, it's the um, absence of sound design. It was the simplest part of the sound mix. So there's nothing there, (laughs) you know? And so this, this great kind of, I you know, calling to see if um by removing everything you can really feel that catharsis. That's not an obvious, there's not an obvious answer to that, you know. Um so I thought about it in terms of earning it and knowing that you would have to go on this grueling visceral journey that had to hurt, that had to challenge you, that had to physically you had to physically feel in order to have that with Ruben you know, in order to go through that with Ruben, which is to feel the absence, which was to actually feel not quietness, but stillness. Yeah. And, and I I don't know, it was a, so yeah, to answer your question, it took a, it took a couple of years to find that end. And I have a very kind of a, had a very interesting circuitous route toward that, that ended up being very personal for me. Um, we had really good endings to this movie. Like we had found ways to work this movie toward conclusions that felt interesting and, and right for the characters, blah, 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 but they weren't it. And I had, a I was very very challenged cracking this, this story. I knew how, how, you know, I knew I was kind of dabbling with a language that at least I hadn't seen before in a film. And it was very exciting. And the characters were, were really, I was really feeling them. God, we were so in love with these characters and Ruben and Lou and Joe, but that ending was, was just, I just couldn't find it. And I had a process that happened over and over again in this film, which was that I had to, I was, I was asked to write another script, uh, I wasn't, no one was paying us to write sound of metal. So I was asked to write a script that actually paid. Um, and I, I, um, I actually said no because I was so obsessed with like, I was with getting the ending to sound of metal yeah. and I was just obsessed and, and it was killing me that I couldn't quite get it. And, and then all of a sudden I looked at my poor starving children without health insurance. And you know, I was like, all right, all right, Dad. You know, do do your thing. Like, be a real man. <laughs> Take a job. <laughs> um, and uh, and so I I did. And I wrote this other very epic big script for a long time, for months. And I I actually put Sound of Metal out of my mind. And and then as soon as I put the period on the end of that script, that other script, I just remembered Sound of Metal again. And it was like it it was like it came back in this very fresh. Way it, I saw it, it was it was this. But what happened in that moment, I entered into this writing, you know, this period of writing that was very much a flow state from that point forward. It, it just it's hard to hard to know why and how you get to that place. Mm-hmm. But what I was really doing in many ways was writing an end that had everything to do with my own life and letting go in my own life at that time, and. Um, even though I knew this film was about letting go and acceptance, I hadn't been willing to do it or write it, I think, because it was very, very painful for me. And, you know, I had a, a very, very long-term relationship and, and marriage that needed to be let go of. And I wasn't even cognizant of it. I just, I wrote that ending and it kind of ushered in this whole chapter in my own life, which very much paralleled the making of Sound of Metal. So it was this fascinating, like something I needed to have some skin in the game. And I, I, think, I think before that time, I just wasn't really willing to see it. It was too painful. I couldn't deal with it. I couldn't deal with that. And I, mm. I wrote it before I was able to deal with it in my own life. And then eventually I, I dealt with it. Um. So I kind of had to go through this very meta experience making this film of of letting go, essentially, of of walking away.
0: Yeah. I and mean, then there's enough time between that realization and the the moment when the ending comes to you, and then filming the ending, so that it it must have felt like a strange, almost strangely emotionally detached by that point. That it was. Oil. Well,
3: no, actually, but when the when we actually got to filming the ending, it was very palpable. Like yeah. that, I was literally going through that same thing in my own life okay. at that moment. Wow. So that was a moment the moment of separation. I had actually it actually worked its way right to that time. And so I I felt myself with this film letting go of pretty much letting go of a lot in, in as I shot it. And you know, letting go of the film and and moving into a different chapter in my own life. And so it was a very interesting and incredibly powerful parallel uh, making this movie.
0: <laughs> Did that also feed into the, the penultimate scene in a way, the scene where Ruben and, and Lou realize they can't rekindle what they once had, that, they, that they've both changed so much as people that they need to, they need to move on with their lives. And, and Ruben obviously then makes a decision to, to, to walk away.
3: Yes, so that small motion in the beginning of of him asking her to not scratch and the reference to the cutting, he thinks he's he he thinks he's in charge of that. he thinks he's helping her, and you know, in the end of the movie, he has to recognize he has to see it's impossible not to that that he's part of that that's codependence yeah. and and that's a very, very powerful a very, very painful thing to have to recognize that mm-hmm. you you think you're holding something up and you may actually be hurting it and that that's a it's a very special thing to show on on the screen for me because i i think we often see breakups as these these angry or this or that or the other thing but they this is a very loving breakup this is a this is a recognition that if you really love somebody sometimes mm-hmm. you let them go and and they both have to do that you mm-hmm. know um it's it's mutual so yeah that was that was heartbreaking to write actually I remember my brother and I talking about it and he looked at me and he's like you sick fuck." <laughs> that's <laughs> that is sad um it's really sad but but to get back to your your question about the opening and the closing of the movie mm-hmm. it's really exciting to work with that cinematic language which was about you know the opening frame and the closing frame in the movie are almost identical frames um he's sitting at a kit at the end he's sitting on a bench but they're very much similar frames and you know in the beginning of course he's surrounded by feedback uh noise the sound of metal little uh literal metal and and um not literal but the you know the music metal yeah. um and uh, you know feedback and darkness and apprehension and uh, and power, you know, and and intensity, and this feeling of expectation, this feeling of what's coming, this kind of lust and thirst, and, and looking to her. That whole opening scene is 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 about them them as a couple. It's not so much about a concert. It's really like a scene between a couple. And but but you're but in that opening shot, you actually hear before you see. You hear the sound. You hear the feedback, and then the image comes up. You hear before you see, so it's the inverse of the end of the movie. It's a, literally a mirror of it. Mm. And and as you push into him, you're you're moving into a first person perspective in that beginning. You know, and it's an incredibly important language. To recognize that this is what this this is how we're watching this movie. And you don't realize you're hearing through his ears at that time, but you are. Um, and that's slowly going to unfold as it goes. Um, but that you know that moving in toward him that looking at lou it's his look to lou that brings us to her to her Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and that's the language of the movie and in the end of the movie you know that frame is you know it's it's interesting because he doesn't you know in the beginning he's naked and i mean he's Mm -hmm. naked to, to the waist and he has his tats and he has his muscles but he's But he's got a lot of armor up and in the end he's got clothes on and he's but in a way he's more naked than he's ever been he's more open and he's more exposed you know so it was this idea of kind of working toward that that kind of um shedding of identity you know and and bring you know literally bringing him to that to that light and you know the it's that sound that you hear the feedback you hear in the beginning of the movie is actually reflected in the feedback you hear at the end in the same frame. So the, the actual, uh, the actual cinematic mirroring or circle, like you called it is, is happening sonically as well as visually. So that Mm -hmm. last sound of the bells that's feeding back in his ears, the sound of those metal bells are the sound that he's been kind of, Trying to get to the whole movie is very much the similar sonic frequency as he's in in the beginning, and that's the thing that he finally that he finally removes. so yeah, it was really it was really exciting to work with that kind of editorial palette and and really get specific with it um and I, I you know I think it was it was truly exciting
0: that's amazing that is amazing and uh i I know we don't have a lot of time left, so i I, I want to talk about joe and joe is such a huge presence throughout the 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 middle of the movie and there are but there are three key scenes there are three really key scenes between him and and Ruben. there's the there's their first meeting there's the conversation where joe basically says hey i stick around you can work here if you want and that is what seems to set ruben off in a in his final destructive Mm -hmm. spiral Uh uh-huh and then of course you have the third scene and and maybe because you know we're being contrary we should <laughs> we should maybe begin with that one uh, which is this incredible scene between Joe and Reuben after Ruben's had the the implants and rewatching it again it's, it's such a fascinating scene because it's clear that Joe is heartbroken it's another breakup scene if you will uh, yep. it's breaking his heart to do this to Reuben but I also wondered how much of that is Joe rolling with the punches and rolling with the the news he's receiving. Does he know, for example, that Ruben has received the implants and his decision to to cut Ruben off in that moment uh, is is very very interesting? Can you talk about that and and how you guys um, unfolded the scene as you
3: went? Yeah, it's a pretty layered scene, and you know, Ruben's in the bargaining phase of the stages of grief at this time, so he's literally bargaining in that scene. But it's an interesting scene uh because about kind of what i think the question you were asking what does joe know what's what is joe aware of what isn't he aware of the heartbreak is you know joe joe is a guy who fought in vietnam and paul paul you know was in the navy in vietnam who played joe he 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 fought two tours in vietnam Mm. and you know, we, we talked a lot about this, like in, in the war he had, you know, you have your tribe, you have your, your group of people, and sometimes someone's going to take, going to sink the boat. You know, sometimes someone's just needs to be dealt with because everyone's going to go down. They're reckless, you know? And in a way that happens in this scene where Paul recognizes, you know, Paul's got a flock. He's taking care of people in need. He's, he's creating a safe place. And, Mm and and he's seeing a guy who's in an addictive uh frame of mind here um he's seeing the addict and it's, yeah. it's it and it's very interesting because you know paul isn't really you know if reuben it's not really so much about the implant you know the implant you know was, was had to do with Ruben's bargaining it had to do with Ruben's,, you know working himself kind of unwittingly out of a place of healing. And, and not really, it's not really a commentary on getting an implant or not getting an implant. Mm-hmm. You know, I think even Joe doesn't have a, necessarily a definitive opinion about that. You know, I think he's one who would say, look, if you want to do it, do it. Um, you know, many people do he's, but he does know what his community is. You know, he knows that it's a, you know, it's a deaf community and that, People are, are, are working toward accepting their condition their and, 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 and their culture, um, and not, and, and being present in that place. And he's been very clear to Ruben about that. So, so yes, I think, I think as soon as Ruben walks in the room, I think, I think Joe sees the the whole story and Joe knows this. He knows it from his own life. He's, he's met a hundred Rubens over the years he knows it so he knows what's going down right off the bat that this guy is going to have to walk down that road alone he's just going to have to and if he doesn't you know one thing joe's not going to do is um, you know you said it's a breakup but joe's not going to play out a codependent dynamic yeah he's not going to do yeah. that he's going to he's going to um he's going to give ruben a gift in fact he's going to give him two gifts he's going to say one you're going to have to go down that road alone and uh And he's going to, uh, he's going to also give him this gift of, of where peace is found. He's going to tell him this, you know, he's going to impart this thing that he's actually learned the hard way, which is that if you're running away from an empty, if you're running away from that abyss, which Ruben's doing from the first frame, that abyss, that dark place where you're all alone and the world is just the shittiest place on earth. The world is the shittiest place on earth that's a funny sentence um the you're you know that really empty dark place if you're always trying to avoid it you know yes the world can seem like it's abandoning you things come and go ruben's dealt with abandonment his whole life but he's really he's really telling them in that moment that the you know the kingdom of god is is something that won't aban- abandon you because it's inside. It's not, there's nothing external about it. It's the only place you find it. It's the only place you find grace. Yeah. And, and that's something that Joe knows from his own life, from having been very dark places. So that's the second gift. And he gives these two gifts. He, he, he sends them on his way. That's a gift. And he, and he tells them that. And that's ultimately the, the kind of leadership that's very rare. You know, Joe is a rare sort. And he, he understands that he has to do this intensely painful thing. But for Paul, boy, that broke his heart. Paul as Joe, it mm. broke his heart every time. It broke his heart. You know, so that heartbreak you see in that scene, is very, very real between the two of them. It was the end of our journey together. We shot chronologically. So it was, a, it was, it was the end of an actual journey um and and Riz would have to leave that community after we shot that scene and never come back and he was leaving nine months of sign language at that point it was it was really an end, and it was the same for paul he had it was it was beautiful and and palpable
0: so uh, how long was uh in your in your head was Ruben, uh at the community how long did had he spent there
3: I think about uh five months yeah four to five months okay yeah long enough to to learn sign and uh You know, it's funny because a lot of times I I read or see people go, God, he learned signs so easily. But as if it did just happen like that, but it doesn't. It's a time, there's a time shift. I always call those like the deer hunter cuts where you're just in another moment in time and you, you, you have to figure it out.
0: Uh, I think we've got about five minutes left. uh, So I'm just going to shoot around to do a couple of uh, pivotal moments. And uh, one of those is the moment that Ruben really begins to lose his hearing at the merchandise stall. Uh, pre-gig yeah. I, again th- this must be something that you you and abraham toyed with for so long how does he lose his hearing
3: yes and you know what we really wanted was this feeling like it happens when you least expect it you should be in the ordinary world longer yeah. you know what i mean on yeah. in a in normal screenplay landscapes you know it's like plot you shouldn't he shouldn't lose his hearing right there and that's why it was so great to do it because it's it's before you expect it and then on top of that you have a merch table scene which is like utterly kind of gritty and real and innocuous like just a moment in your in the realm not not like a a huge setup where you see it coming but something where you're just thrown into this super real moment that is that reflects what they do every day and it happens and it and you just have to go what what happened to my movie? You know, this is what I'm doing. And part of that's because the plot point of losing your his hearing isn't actually the plot. Mm-hmm. You know mm-hmm. The movie's probably more about addiction than it is about deafness. the 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 actual unveiling of the plot comes later when you realize he's an addict. But in that moment, we have to go through this kind of gestalt as an audience. So, that the making of that scene was really cool because i invited this band surfboard to come to the set and actually i had to really punk rock that scene because we weren't financially allowed to have more speaking parts in the movie and i was adamant so i actually got this band these amazing people sean powell and who was who was instrumental in helping riz learn drums and all sorts of things this great kind of uh band surfboard i got them i on train. No one even knew they were coming to that, to the set that day. And I really pissed off everyone. And I apologize to my producers, but I kind of had to do it, which is like, we shot, we shot it and they, and I, and just let it rip. And all of a sudden they're talking and we've screwed our entire budget. And, um, but I needed it to be this kind of raw. And it's interesting that to play wildly with that scene because it's such a pivotal scene in the movie. Mm. But it needed to be wild. That scene needed to just be like wild and raw and feel real and gritty and alive. And it did while we were shooting. I was just, I just loved shooting that scene, even though everyone, I could hear people freaking out. Like, what the fuck is going on you know i could hear it happening and i knew it was going to be this major fallout after and it's not it wasn't even fair to anybody but i just had to do it because that scene had to feel like that (laughs) it was exciting scene to shoot and chris i've never told that particularly either
0: Oh, amazing! Amazing! Thank you so much. And uh, I've got to—I to, um, I do want to finish off talking very, very quickly about those other two pivotal scenes with with Joe as well. But talking of the sound design and the, the moment where where Ruben loses his hearing brings me to the the scene where he's his implants are activated, and you know you're plunging the audience and Ruben into this incredible soundscape, and it's dizzying and scary and alien and uncomfortable. And I wanted to ask about that scene, how you and Riz navigated your way through that, And also, have you had any pushback from from the the medical community about the depiction of how implants sound in this? Yes, movie? I
3: have. No, not about how they sound. okay. Not about more about the process. Um, and I admittedly, you know i'm I'm very aware of the process. It's a very com- complicated process of getting implants and we don't go into that because we're not a documentary about cochlear implants but you know but i do recognize there's certain things like implants being covered by insurance and it's and it's definitively spoken that they're not and i think there's things in the film that i've gotten some pushback from the audiology community about that which i i really respect and appreciate and you know it's it's there's a lot of research done on this movie but you know it doesn't it doesn't show the full whole process it it needs to it's a movie you know um and you know sometimes i joke like how does he get to europe he gets on a plane and he gets tickets and he puts his bags in an overhead compartment but you don't see any of that either and you <laughs> you know what happens um but anyway but i do understand you know um yeah. that but the implant scene oh what a what a what a wonderful scene to work towards shooting and i was so excited about the scene and i had a very very clear idea about how that should sound, and it turned out to be extraordinarily heavily lifting to work to get that sound to what it ended up being. Mm. But the emotional process—one of the questions you asked—is what did what did Riz and I do leading up to that? And because mm. we shot chronologically, we were really moving through this movie in you know as an experience. And Riz had hearing implant; he had he had actual implants that he wore throughout this movie that blocked sound. Um, So he couldn't hear his own voice when he was deaf. And he was actually some simulated version of being deaf. Mm. Um, When we went into this scene, there's such an emotional component to the scene. And Riz actually reminded me of this. I don't, I didn't remember it, but I, I came into the room before the scene where he was and um, we both knew what the scene was about. We knew what it meant. We knew what was at stake. And I, and he had explained that I just came in and I looked at him. And we sat there and we kind of looked at each other for a little while and then i got up and left (laughs) that was and that was my direction uh you know i don't think we even spoke a word um wow and and you know i like to work that way i think there's just an emotional truth to the scene it didn't need to be spoken it 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 was it's not intellectual it's visceral yeah and um and so the scene plays out but there's an actual also an actual physical process that's happening where his own hearing had where, where those implants turn on and there's a, there's a noise in his, in his ears while it's happening. So it's not nothing. And the same was true for the merch table scene. We had those implants in his ears. So when he goes deaf, that happens. So it's physical. And by that point in the movie, having gone through Joe's community, having said goodbye, it was so emotional. You know, it was so devastating, just so devastating in real time. And, and and it's such a testament to Riz as an actor and the process he went on that he was so specific and it was heart-wrenching to watch it, you know? And and, and that, again, raised, you know, as literally as I'm watching him act that scene, I'm just thinking, man, this sound design has to be so goddamn good to honour this performance that he's giving, you know?
0: I realise I have to let you go, but I, if I can just ask very, very quickly about the the scenes with Joe and I guess in particular that second scene where Joe offers him a job, because as you say, it is about the five stages of grief. It is about Ruben coming to terms with his deafness and coming to terms with you know, coming to that point of acceptance. And he's, he's there, he's, he's absolutely there. And then Joe unwittingly offers him this job and security and that freaks ruben the fuck out and exactly. can you talk about that and uh, and you know where where that came from that that, that idea for you for you guys
3: ruben is an emotionally intelligent you know he's a child of tremendous trauma he's he's a he's someone who's dealt with an incredible loss in his life and he's lost both parents he never met his father he lost his mother it was the only thing he had and he's dealt with real darkness and abandonment and, and he's dealt with being beaten in foster homes. He's, his, his, his journey is very specific. And mm-hmm. that kind of injury is what Joe has been working on with Ruben, mm-hmm. vis-a-vis the room and the writing. It's, it's not something that Joe could talk to Ruben about. It's something that, that Ruben would have to um, feel Which is to deal with some of those that deep trauma. It's it's something that moves slowly through someone. And if you are able to to work your way past trauma, it's not an intellectual process. And Joe didn't intend for that to be what 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 happened from that conversation, although I think Joe could probably have predicted some amount of it. But that what Joe didn't predict is that Ruben would steal away into his office and then see that that Lou was Playing music without him.
2: Mm.
3: You know? Yeah. And so and so it's twofold. It was a moment of abandonment. It was a moment of ruben kind of having that abandonment trauma reflex. And then and then it being exacerbated following mm. that scene by seeing Lou as a one woman show in Paris playing her mm. f- kind of pharmacon crazy beautiful thing and recognizing that it was all leaving it was all gone and he had to scramble. And from that moment forward, he has, he forms plans, you know, he's, Mm -hmm. he's, he's from that moment forward, he's way ahead of us as an audience. He's like, I gotta, I gotta, you know, it's like the cockroach on his neck. I'm going to survive. I'm going to survive this, you know? And, uh, and that's Ruben in a nutshell. He's a survivor except at his own expense at other people's expense.
0: In terms of his relationship with Joe as well, there's an extra barrier, that extra armor, uh, also of him being an addict, means that he's been to communities not exactly like Joe's, but he will have heard yeah. similar things that Joe might otherwise have been peddling. So he has there's there's a, an extra layer, an extra defense mechanism that, that that keeps Joe at arm's length. I think with with, with Ruben, having gone through that already, yeah,
3: yeah, he's been through a uh, na, absolutely. You know, he has a sponsor. You, you meet the sponsor vis-a-vis a phone call in the diner earlier. Mm. You know, the whole backstory is kind of there if you're willing to see it. It's all there. You know he's been through it, and you're exactly right. But, you know, he hasn't, he hasn't dealt with a character like Joe that sees him in the way that Joe does, and that's a frightening thing to have to deal with because he's up against, he was up against acceptance way before he was ready to accept. Mm. You know, and having to let go before he was ready to let go. And I think that I, I really do. I think that happens to all of us all the time. Like so many of us, we know the path toward making ourselves a whole person or healing these various things that we all deal with in life. Sometimes we have to go 60, 70 years before we get there, mm-hmm. you know, or sometimes we don't get there at all. Mm-hmm. And it's just, um, it, I, I think it's the, I think it's our, it's all of our journey.
0: <laughs> <You> no <know. laughs> indeed indeed and uh, listen that's an excellent note on which to end uh darius it's been an absolute pleasure but if i made you miss your flight i would never forgive myself and also <laughs> you would send me a massive massive bill so uh i'm gonna let you go but it's been it's been an absolute blast
3: thank Such you so much a sir. pleasure chris nice to see you again
0: uh likewise i'm so glad that i asked you a question you legitimately had not been asked before asking loads of questions that you have been asked at infinitum
3: <laughs> shockingly shockingly it's interesting that i haven't been asked that but uh i appreciate that and um and you know it was a great interview so thank oh, you brother
0: bless you thank you very much indeed and uh right. flight cheers Doris. take care thank you bye Right. Alright, so that was Darius Martyr, and now it is time for us uh, giggling idiots to talk about Sound of Metal. Uh, A film with not a lot of levity, so there may not be a lot of giggling uh, during this part, but uh, what did we make of the movie overall? First of all, let's let's start in general terms before we drill down into some of the key scenes and the key moments from the film. Uh, For me, this is one of the films of the year. I was (laughs) delighted to see it win a couple of Oscars. Um, I think this is a meticulously assembled movie. Uh, And I I love the fact that it is touching and moving without being sentimental. What about you guys?
2: hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely agree with that. I I think it's just, it's brilliantly paced and and I think it's it's layered enough that it feels meaty and, uh, you know, deals with universal and very specific issues all at the same time. But it never feels, you know, it feels very focused on this individual story. It doesn't feel like it's waffling or casting about for what it wants to say at any point. But it also feels like this individual story has a lot to tell kind of all of us. And I, I thought so I thought that was a, that was a brilliant, brilliant through line um, that you have with Ruben's character. and the, the different and sort of overlapping challenges he faces, I think is something that, you know, everybody can kind of relate to you know i'm not a rock drummer i'm not a recovering addict uh, mm-hmm. i i have not so far had any major issues with my hearing but that overlapping of everything coming at once of you know one part of your life falls apart and then everything else threatens to come down with it that is something that i think anybody can relate to and and you know so while it's incredibly specific and incredibly educational i think for many of us in those mm-hmm specific things. I think it's also really important in just just portraying one man's life brilliantly.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In addition to the fact that Men is an acting god, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think the two biggest things I came away from this film thinking is one, having a greater appreciation for the gift of hearing, but also having a greater, a much greater appreciation for the deaf community and how enriching Mm. that is. Um, I also just love how not cliche the film is on practically every level, just on one level, like his girlfriend never leaves him. That could have been an easy decision that they could have made. That never happens. And there's so many other things that I'm sure we're going to get into more detail on, but just all the way through, Mm. it makes the hard choice rather than taking the easy way out. And that's impressive. Absolutely
2: and and there's so many you're you're 100% right on that there's there's so many moments where they could have gone for the easy thing of you know oh he can't afford the surgery he wants mm-hmm. and that's what stymies him and it's like no he he can just about do it it's a struggle and they don't make light of that but he can mm-hmm. do it but the question is really not just can he afford it it's also is that actually the solution and is that actually the problem that he has and i think mm-hmm. so that the film just keeps um shifting your I don't know expectations, Deception. perception. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and uh, and uh, in a way that I thought was was super, super clever.
0: Yeah, I really like that. I really like the way that it, it skirts. You know, we've seen movies like this a, a million times before. Uh, and as as Darius have said in the interview, it's 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 essentially about an addict. It's it's not really about a guy who loses his hearing. although obviously it is, but it's basically the fact that you know the the addictions. And the fact that he's an addict is what really drives Ruben and his behaviour and the things that he attaches emotion to and attaches importance to. We've seen a million movies like this before where someone goes into a community like this or a a therapy group like this and they're reluctant and resistant at first. Then gradually the guy breaks them down. The mentor with a heart of gold manages to break them down and they embrace the that part of themselves that they've been really struggling to embrace, and everyone goes home happy. And this movie doesn't do that. And it is really interesting to me how Reuben pushes back against what would normally be the movie convention—the the happy ending, mm-hmm. which is I—he's uh, I, learned ASL, he's beginning to embrace his deafness, and another movie, a lesser movie perhaps, would would have the happy clappy ending where he is fully in one with that community and one with mm-hmm. Joe's community, and he and he lives there happy into the rest of his days. He it doesn't. He doesn't do that. He's very restless. He pushes back against that. Uh, he runs from. The possibility of happiness, and gets the implants. He rejects essentially the teachings of the group and Joe's teachings, and you know that is a really interesting and bold decision. Obviously, ultimately, it ends with him embracing that side of himself, the deaf side of himself. How much of the ending is about him accepting that moment of stillness, and how much of it is about him just turning off this noise in his head that's there twenty four seven, is perhaps something we can we can debate. But I really like the way that it, it, the movie pushes and pushes into those interesting and uncomfortable areas that a, a, a more sentimental movie uh, wouldn't even have gone near.
2: Yeah, I, I think I, I took the ending as as you know accepting a moment of stillness, and I think you're right that it goes back to his. His addiction, and he has been—he has replaced addiction, maybe to drugs, with, you know, addiction to music, addiction to movement, addiction to, you know, this constant kind of push of his career and his band and his love affair, and being forced to stop doing that is obviously extremely challenging, as it would be for for anybody, but but extremely challenging for Ruben in particular because it means because that's the new addiction. So he's essentially almost dealing with a whole new. You know, withdrawal process, I think. And so, you know, I'm probably overextending the metaphor horribly at this point, but the (laughs) the cochlear implants in in that respect become a sort of methadone treatment, a sort of replacement structure um, that he thinks might allow him to keep up this kind of addiction without Mm -hmm. really fully going through withdrawal. And and I think that moment at the end, I think you're right. I, I think it's a there's a note of questioning and there's a note of um, open endedness there. But I think it's it's a beginning of an acceptance of, at the very least, a middle way. At the very yeah. least, accepting that this will not solve everything and everything will not go back to normal even if he's going to keep trying and keep struggling on and keep trying to find some way to continue drumming or whatever else i think mm-hmm. i think at the very least he's he's accepted that it won't be quite like it was and i think at most he has accepted you know that that door might be closed now and, and he needs to figure out this new way which yeah. might include yeah. the implant still because i think there is an adjustment period which he's mm-hmm. clearly still in i mean i think the film pretty much tells us he has not yet adjusted mm but it but it leaves that it leaves it open it leaves him on a journey but at least accepting that he's on a journey and he can't just kind of shortcut his way around it i think
1: mm-hmm. yeah it's just so cleverly done because mm. like you know speaking only for myself I don't know about you guys but i've never done drugs or anything mm-hmm. like that.
2: You're, to- you're talking to the squarest people in the world. Yeah, yeah <laughs> fine.
1: I, I've done Pro Plus, and I've done an Extra,
0: and that is legitimately about as much as I've ever done.
2: I had two paracetamol the other week when I had my uh, my jab, so yeah.
1: Living dangerous. <laughs> um, but like, typically when we're talking about addiction in movies, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. So mm. as good as many of those portrayals are, there's a distance when I watch that because I haven't been through that. The way in which, you know, this movie is structured, as you've been saying, the addiction is sort of former identity and how can I get back to that? And we can all relate to that because the first 40 minutes, I think the first time I watched it, I remember texting you, Helen, and I saying the first 40 minutes of Sound of Metal is the scariest horror film I've seen all year. Yeah. Because the way they show the sudden loss of hearing and what that means for Ruben and his life and his identity that he's, worked however many years to sort of perfect and to have mm. pride in is scary. And thinking about how we might react in a similar situation where we were faced with the loss of or the change of something that gargantuan, we can all really relate to that, which makes yeah. the ending and his story that much more powerful, at least for me.
0: Yeah. As Darius Marta said in the interview, it's about, you know, it, the, the film is essentially about depicting the five stages, the uh, the Kubler-Ross stages of grief, um, which I can never remember. Denial, acceptance, bargaining, I'm
2: not lasagna. sure those are quite in, I'm pretty sure acceptance comes a little bit later in the process. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, <laughs> Did, uh, is, lasagna, is there denial, is
2: despair, that, anger, bargaining, bargaining, anger, acceptance?
0: I should look this up, shouldn't I? I, should. Look, I, should, I should try and remember this. This is like, uh, genuinely, this is like Henry the sick Henry the six wives. I can never remember. You know that died, beheaded, divorced, Divorce beheaded, di- at work. Uh,
2: divorced, beheaded, died, divorced, beheaded, outlived.
0: Okay, Jeez. but I, I, I'll never remember that. So I'm, it's pointless I'm, me even just- trying to remember. But yes, so it's about the those early. You're absolutely right. Those early stages of uh, Ruben losing his hearing are terrifying. I'd love to double bill this with Whiplash for the most mm, anxiety-inducing drummer double bill. <laughs>
2: Was it a uh, spinal tap where the drummer kept uh, Yeah, the drummers,
0: Yeah. The drummers keep exploding or just dying in a car. Well, there you go. There's, there's ways. your
2: slightly more uplifting. Triple bill. Triple bill. Yeah. Drummers, man. They have a hard time of it. Sorry,
0: <laughs> they do, drummers. They do have a hard time of it. You know, who are the, who are the, who are the good drummers? Who are the drummers who have an easy time of it? I guess, uh, the, the, the last thing you do is about the drummer, isn't it?
2: That's true. He gets the girl. Yeah.
0: He gets the girl <laughs> in the end. So it's all good. It's all good. Uh, but anyway, yeah, the first 40 minutes or so is that I love the fact that it it happens so in such an offhand manner mm-hmm. uh, and we should talk about the sound design of this movie because oh, they, <laughs> they won an Oscar for it, but it's 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 absolutely incredible. you know I I am not hard of hearing, I'm not deaf, I'm not hearing impaired um, but I think this movie gives you an incredible insight into what it would be like for someone who loses his hearing in the way that that Reuben does. Um, you know, the, the muffled conversation, the half heard sentences, the, I, I just love the way this thing is designed.
1: Yeah. They yeah. set that up so well as well, because the openings of five, 10 minutes or so are Ruben doing little things, uh, around his a trailer home and, you know, we see sort of how much sound impacts as well beyond just drumming. And then yeah. when it happens, you know, all, all of that, and they, 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 sh- they show you that routine again, and it's just completely different. It's interesting, um, I want to see this film in the cinema, but the first time I watched this, I watched this on my computer and I watched it with headphones. And mm. this is one of the rare, rare films that I would say, if you can, at some point watch it with headphones because it gave me an even greater appreciation for the sound design, seeing what they were doing, sort of intimately wearing headphones. I'm, I'm intrigued to sort of see it in the cinema to compare and contrast those things. Um, mm-hmm. But right now I have only had the headphone experience and that was superb. Um, but it's just with, with the sound, not not only with the sound, but with what they did with the subtitles and what they didn't do with the subtitles, all of that brings you into Ruben's headspace in a really effective way, in a really innovative, creative way that we I'm I haven't seen in a movie do before.
2: Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's phenomenally done. And so subtly done. And then also it has those moments of just shock and kind of, as, as Amon says, horror. Um when you realise the extent of the damage and the you know, the extent the damage he's doing himself as well, especially when he goes in to to, to record another show
1: and yeah. you're just like, No, oh, please don't. The oh God. way my heart sank. Oh, oh was I, why are you doing this? <laughs> yeah, this bad. That
2: yeah. would be denial, I guess. Yeah.
1: <laughs>
0: Absolutely. So, so let me ask you, I, Darius Martyr is such a, a wonderful conversationalist that I didn't get to ask him a lot of my questions, and uh, two of the questions I didn't get to ask him, one of which was about the opening shot of the movie. So the opening shot of the movie, we, we talked about it, we talked about it in great detail, but I didn't ask this specific question. I'm going to ask you guys, see what you think. Mm-hmm. So the opening shot of the movie is obviously Riz as Ruben at the drum kit uh, waiting for Lou to kick in with the with that so so catchy Christmas number one song uh, of of theirs. <laughs> For me, I've seen this movie a, a few times now, and every time I hear it, it feels like he's his hearing's already going in that moment. Mm. She sounds muffled and faded, and and in the distance. Now, is that? Do you think that's because he is so focused on what he's doing that he's not really attuned to her yet, or do you think that is? foreshadowing of the hearing loss?
2: I took it weirdly as, as almost both. So the first time I watched it, I assumed that this was us just focused on him and just really, really focused in. So you see this sometimes, it's kind of a movie technique where you are only hearing what is immediate to the person mm-hmm. you're seeing on screen. Everything else is faded into the background. They are about to go and do their thing, whatever it is. And, and so when I first watched it, that's, that's how I kind of saw it. And it was only later thinking about it, I thought, "Oh, hang on, that could actually literally have been what he was hearing at that moment." Um, And so I didn't. I thought it was really is a is a really subtle way of introducing the hearing loss in in a in a strange sense because what I took as a filmmaking technique could actually be his reality at that moment.
1: Interesting. I'll be definitely listening out for that when I watch it back. Uh, To me, I thought it was more of the focus on Ruben and Ruben alone and Ruben being in the zone. And, you know, getting ready to come in and do this thing with the drums. I didn't sort of read it uh, as anything more than that. Um, but yeah, what you said just, mm. what you just said very much intrigues me. I'll be looking out for that for sure.
0: It is wild. I guess when you go to a gig like that, when it's so loud, what you know, mm. like, what's the loudest gig you've ever been to, for example, if you're close to the speakers? It can do that to your hearing. It can make you feel a little bit like you're underwater. It can make you feel like you're being almost drowned in sound. Hey, that's a good name for a website. We should we should do something like that. <laughs> uh, is that something you guys have ever experienced? You know, what's the loudest gig you've ever been to?
2: Uh, uh, I've been surprised. Like, you know, if you don't feel it in your breastbone, are you really at a gig? Really? You know? <laughs> um. I mean, I haven't been to many sort of like, well, I haven't been to, like, I can think of any. Kind of thrash metal gigs in tiny clubs. Black Gammon's not really
0: your kind of cup of tea, is it?
2: It's not, I'm not massively a metalhead. I like a little bit of, you know, pop, poppier metal, I suppose, now and again mm-hmm. on my running playlists.
0: A little bit of McBusted.
2: You would describe that as pop metal. Pop metal.
0: Listen, I've seen McBusted live. Uh, those guys were rocking.
2: I'm I'm literally thinking like Rage Against the Machine, like Oh yeah, Ender yeah. Sandman, I was also thinking like, about that. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, Sorry. Yeah. Um, <laughs>
0: <laughs> whoops. There goes my indie credibility.
2: <laughs> now, in terms of like small clubs, loud noises. You know, uh, I was a very much a breakbeat kind of trip hoppy girl. So we're talking things like DJ Shadow and playing very very loud in very very small spaces in bigger spaces uh, bigger spaces of you know it's mostly been kind of like the the big concert groups because I'm very uncool mm. so I saw mm. like blur and I saw like Oasis and I saw like you 2 but you and come out and your like
0: ears that. are ringing at the end though oh yeah, my yeah, god yeah. you know that's <laughs>
1: that'll raise your yeah. hair and your Hard chest board, yeah sure
0: i on what about you
1: yeah i don't really go to that many gigs like when i when what when, when i been to clubs, sure, my ears have been ringing after that. Um, but yeah, uh, I've been to a John Legend gig. That was great. And um, went to a Yeah, hands that's also
2: gig. not going to be like crazy <laughs> yeah. thrash metal, yeah. is it? And then
1: I went he t- to. He
0: turns it all the way up to six.
2: <laughs> hey, he is a gift I love that.
0: and an love- egot. Okay. <laughs> I love John Legend, but, you know, thrash metal, he ain't.
1: <laughs> this is more of a question for my sister who sort of, you know, in normal times goes to like. A gig every week, um, right. and she would know. She would have a good answer for this. But like, mm. yeah, like okay. I just like Hans Zimmer again. Keeps it. A, a <laughs> that's your
2: answer to everything. Yeah, and that's your answer to everything. Where do you want to go for lunch next week, Hans Zimmer? Hans Zimmer. Okay,
1: yeah. all right. Yeah. Why, not? I, went Why to, not? I went to Michael Gacino's fiftieth. That was great. Oh yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, but I'm <laughs> I, mean, I okay. not the point, so. <laughs> No, it's, it's
0: interesting because I just think this this really nails the 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 feeling of being. i you know I'm not a thrash metal duo frequentist um but that is that is really i think really captures the 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 sound if you go to one of these hardcore gigs you know like a like a crowded house or an idle wild you know it's you you really (laughs) your eardrums are being assaulted that's that that it feels like they really captured that
2: i mean that's true i've been to both crowded house and the divine comedy with you chris so i know all about thrash metal yeah (laughs) yes indeed i actually live near a thrash metal club Um, and I do I go past sometimes anyway one of the pubs locally on the corner like hosts metal bands a lot Mm -hmm. so I I walk past metal gigs a lot I do not go in and partake (laughs) very much
0: sure Sure, but I'm close sure. enough
2: to see the sweat dripping down the window so you know it's real.
0: <laughs> Just like a crowd crowded house gig. Uh, anyway, I want to talk, I want to ask you guys, I want to get your take on Ruben's relationship with music and how important it really is to him. Or is this something that he is fixing an importance to or attaching an importance to that it perhaps doesn't entirely hold for him? I thought, for example, it was interesting. And again, this is something I didn't talk about with Darius, but uh, I, it was on my list and I would have done. But for, you know, he had to go to the airport. And it is, you know, he's obviously in this band with Lou and obviously it's important to them and it means a lot to them. And you get the sense that there's definitely an authenticity there. They're not faking it in any way, shape or form. But I also think it's interesting that the only two times we hear them both listening to music, it is so far removed from metal. Uh, You know, when they dance together in the airstream, it's there's a, a it's a nice romantic song bit jazzy there's a little bit of almost like a 1920s song that plays at one point as well so i'm wondering how much of it how much of that identity that he's constructed for himself that he's hanging so much of his hat on is a little bit of a fabrication built maybe to try and stave f- you know, the demons of addiction from, uh, you know, keep him at the the door a little bit. And how much of it is actually, because he doesn't seem to be missing the music, is what I'm saying. You know, when when he's at Joe's community, there are things that he misses. He misses intensely Lou. And obviously I think one of the things that triggers him and makes him get the implants is that shot of her performing on her own. And he clearly misses the buzz of being in a band. And he clearly misses the buzz of being with Lou. But how much does he miss the music? That's the interesting thing to me.
2: But he does keep drumming. You know, there, yeah. are, there are those yeah. moments where he connects with deaf people by drumming and and shares that with people. So I do I do think it's important to him. I get what you're saying that you know he's replaced one addiction with another, and it's it's less about music per se as about having a thing that is your identity that you do that is it yeah. keeps you focused
0: you get up in the morning you do your routine you, you get in the airstream and, yeah. you drive to the next gig you play the next gig yeah. and we're in I no, repeat. I get what
2: you're saying but at the same time like if you look at him in that opening scene and and you know the passion with which he drums i mean you know, yes you can say okay he's just almost working on his demons doing that but but i think there's i think there's real skill and there's real talent there and i think that mm-hmm. probably should come from a love passion. of music as well yeah, yeah passion yeah. for the music okay. as well
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's the, it's the scene with the kids that clinches it for me Mm. in that regard. Um, and then the opening scene as well, that, that opening shot and for me, I think the thing which I felt watching that was like the, the pride he takes in being where he is being, being able to do this at such a high level. Um, and even though obviously we don't see it, there's a lot of man hours that went into him getting to that place. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I think part of the thing, which I took from when he uh, sort of started playing with those kids and teaching them how to drum in a sense was that he misses being able to do that to his fullest self. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: No, fair enough. Fair enough. I, uh, I don't, I, I think he obviously loves music, clearly. mm Just something I was intrigued to get your take on it and I I wish I'd got Darius Marger's take as well. Uh, He probably would have told me I was an idiot and hung up (laughs) the interview and never spoken to us again. But anyway, so let's talk about some of the the other scenes and relationships in the movie. There are, I guess, there are two key relationships in the film. There's Reuben and Lou and then that is replaced for the second half of the movie by Reuben and Joe. Although the relationship between Reuben and Reuben may be the most important relationship of them all. Uh, let's talk about Reuben and Lou, first of all. Never mind Leonardo DiCaprio. This is an unrecognizable Olivia Cook, at least <laughs> for the first the first 20 minutes or so of the movie. Um what what, what do you think of that relationship? What's your take on how that played out? And uh going back to what Amon said, it's it's really interesting that she doesn't leave him. She does, mm. but she doesn't. Yeah. And until the moment when they both realize Upon reconciliation in Paris, that that the train has sailed,
2: yeah, I thought this was it's it's a really interesting relationship because it could have looked bad, frankly. It could have looked like, you know he's kind of clinging to her as a, you know, recovering uh, addict. He's kind of again, replacing one addiction with another. He's sort of clinging to her, holding her back in some way, holding her down. I think there's a fear that he has in himself that he might be doing that or that that might be the result of their relationship. But I think what it becomes clear is that they are massively helping each other, that they're two kind of, you know, wounded people who have found some kind of help and comfort and love, obviously, in each other. And so, you know, I was kind of prepared to be a bit worried about them. Especially in the early scenes where you kind of see that he's, you know, he's hiding from her. He doesn't want her to know what he's going through, obviously, because he is older than her. And, you know, I was kind of ready for a a weird power dynamic or something like that. But you don't get that. You you do get quite an equal, quite a healthy relationship between two unhealthy people who are trying their best and, Mm -hmm. you know, helping each other as best they can because they care about each other desperately and 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 as, you know as the as the story of the film unfolds they're trying to figure out what's best for each other in a way that is actually very touching and very uh, very healthy and very encouraging in a lot of ways so yeah i was i was really prepared to be and see them as a concept, <laughs> and again, you know in the sort of the cliched version of this film, I think it would be an, a less healthy relationship I think it would be more troubling, um, and I think yes, there would be a breakup uh, at a much earlier stage um, and the fact that none of those things are the case, I think speaks to again just the the subtlety going on here and the and the quality of the filmmaking and acting
1: It's just grown up and mature and I love that about it. At every turn. As soon as she finds out, on the phone to her sponsor, how can we help him? Cancelling the tour despite his protest. Um, you know, just as Helen said, always trying to sort of do the right thing uh, for each other. And there are so many other films where that would not have been the case. Um, so it's just nice to see. It's almost like to a point where you, you've watched so many films, you you, you trained yourself to, you know, Sort of predict what may or may not happen with certain relationships, and you know we we we've, we've seen uh, that film where they break up, where the where where she continues the tour regardless, uh, where she tries to come back and she has moved on, and the film is better for not going that route and mm. uh, actually sort of looking at everything in a mature way. I just really appreciated that. Yeah.
0: Yeah, there's there's an element of that. Uh, towards the end that you would be expecting the movie uh, a different movie you, you'd be expecting a different movie to have Lou have moved on in some way yeah and she mm-hmm. has moved on she's transformed by the time he sees her again in Paris but mm-hmm. then again so has he mm-hmm. um but that moment you you another movie might have had her in a, in a relationship or might have had that meeting between the two of them being somewhat antagonistic mm-hmm. I thought it was really interesting really bold the way they that Martyr and uh, and Riz Ahmed and Olivia Cook play that that last scene between the two of them, where they know that they still love each other intensely, and they're they're you know, but they're not right for each other, yeah. and that he brings out an anxiety in her, and just the thought of going back and and hitting the road again, and this is how I read it anyway. Yeah, the the thought of going back and hitting the road again and going through all that stuff, especially with his. Implants, mm-hmm. just an impossible dream, and she begins to absentmindedly scratch at her cutting scars. Yeah, and that's when they both realize. I think that it can't be. It can't be. And there's a there's a wisdom and a maturity, as you say, i on and, and uh, to to that acceptance and to that moment of that's the moment that allows him. I think then to realize that okay, it's time for me to move on, and have the emotional maturity to begin to lean into that moment of of stillness and serenity at the end. But and for the first time, for the first time yeah. as well because he talks mm-hmm. there, there's that conversation in the uh, in the diner when she calls up his sponsor Hector and he's on the phone and you know he's being belligerent and angry and lashing out as you might expect and he says something about you're always telling me you know he, he says something about serenity in that moment and you get a sense that He's never really experienced serenity, not truly. That his version of serenity might be the version that's on stage for him at the beginning, where, but it's still it's it's a very uncertain. It, it's a very uncertain serenity. It's a, it's not built in anything. It, it's not a serene moment of serenity. Yes, basically, yes. it's it's mm-hmm. you know he's he's agitated and fidgety, and you know the music is muscular and driving and undermining his emotions in that way where he is at the end is a true moment of serenity for perhaps the first time in his life and mm. it's about you know getting to, getting to that point that last conversation with him and Lou allows him to get to that point is my long winded yeah. and crappy round of the houses way of saying that
2: <laughs> I, I agree I think like I was saying like I think they're both kind of wounded and I think they have mm. been keeping each other afloat and giving each other comfort but they have not necessarily been sort of recovering from those wounds in a way that they actually end up able to do Apart, and I think that's the awful realization that they they come to at the end that they they are now doing better individually or can do better individually, a you know, in the years to come, despite the fact that they love each other and they would you know, all things being equal, probably have stayed together. So so I think it's um, it it is a very very mature realization, uh, and you know, to not cling to the past and not cling to something that. You know, enabled you to keep going, but maybe didn't enable you to heal or to move forward or whatever else.
1: And it's just—it's really interesting because you know, Ruben's decision to try for that. I've—I've—I've I've, I've read and I've listened to um, some interviews about this film and how people sort of feel about Ruben's character and some of the decisions he makes. And to me, whilst. I get that some of the decisions he makes are unlikable. It's very, mm-hmm. very understandable yeah. why he's going the way he's going, because like, I know this <laughs> is speaking for myself. um, And just in this lockdown period as a whole, sometimes being alone with your own thoughts is terrifying. And when you sort of lose your hearing, there's going to be a lot more of that in your life. And you know, the, uh, Paul Vasey's character is constantly telling them, like, just like, you know, be still, be at peace, you know, write stuff down, be with yourself. And he's sort of, at least in the early going, he really struggles with that. Mm-hmm. Um, which is again, I think another reason why he's sort of longing for that previous life where he didn't have to do that as much and where he sort of, you know, had that identity, which he's forged over how many, however many years. So yeah, I, I just, I just loved it the, the way that they sort of chart that journey. Um, mm. And you know Riz Ahmed, we haven't actually sort of spoken to him about him much, but he is just incredible. Yeah. Just the, the the physical acting is so impressive. And you, when when you sort of add this movie to Mogul uh mm-hmm. what she did earlier, uh, or which he did fairly recently, which is another film where mm-hmm. um, it's an autoimmune disease, he, su- he suffers the loss of, sort of a bodily function. Um, the guy is just on another level right now. Yeah, uh, he's always been talented, but going back to back between those films is is very special.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, they're so similar on paper in terms of, you know, musician suddenly mm. faces loss of everything following, you know, the strike of of you know a bodily problem. And yet mm. completely distinct, completely distinct characters, right. completely distinct challenges, completely distinct worlds. You know, it's he's phenomenal. He's a phenomenally gifted actor.
0: He's tremendous in this. And I think, you know, he obviously was nominated for an Oscar for it. Mm-hmm. Rightly. Uh absolutely rightly. There's something about his performance here which is really interesting in that he doesn't get the histrionics very much. Hmm. You know, Ruben is such an uh, insular, inward-looking character. There's really only there's a little outburst in the diner with with the sponsor Hector when he's just you know he's railing and raging against the diagnosis. And there's the scene in the airstream when he's decided not to take Joe's offer initially and he, and Lou wakes up and he's smashing everything down but otherwise this is a a, a movie shorn of those big emotional breakdown scenes mm. and you know for him to also hint to to avoid all that but also hint at the inner turmoil of of Ruben is an incredible performance yeah, and yeah. uh you know and it was filmed chronologically i think which probably helped as well but mm. it's uh, it's it's a performance that's really really full of of soul and humanity for me.
2: Just things like the, the 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 fear that he feels when confronted with an empty room and a chair and a table and a, a piece of paper to write on, you know, and, and the fact that he just he can't can't abide that stillness. He can't abide that lack of stimulation. He's dependent mm-hmm. on something distracting him from himself. But he doesn't say that. You just get that from him, from his face, from his body, from you know his acting. He's he's mm. incredible in this. Mm.
1: I think you know, talk about the lack of histrionics, and I think that's why I think my favorite scene of this movie is when he's just come back to the compound after having get after after, after, after having gotten the implants mm-hmm. and he's talking to Joe about sort of, you know, his decision about uh you know going to look for Lou and you know going back to his old life. In another film, um, you know, you would get that uh, you, you would get that speech in histrionics in in a much more emotional way. But he is very sort of calm and collected when he's telling Joe this. And then on the flip side that, Paul Racy is also incredible. Um, the hurt on his face and in his voice as he's replying, as he's taking in this decision, it's just so powerful and effectively done and it's more powerful and effective for the fact that both of them are without histrionics, Mm -hmm. uh, which I just loved.
2: Yeah, well, because they're they're both, I think, at that point, you know, well, they're both good people. They're mm. both um, people who respect each other, or like each other, or want to like each other, at least. And you know, that there is this thing between them that that kind of you know, Paul, or sorry, that Joe can't can't accept really that the Joe sees understandably and uh, as a rejection of him and everything he's been trying to say. And and you know, I think I think that Ruben understands that. Absolutely, and is and is still, you know, regrets it, but is also set on this kind of course that he has, he thinks will will give him back what he needs, and and so it is a really, it's a really human scene of two people who absolutely understand where the other person is coming from and absolutely can't agree to it. Essentially,
0: Mm. Mm. it's really interesting, isn't it? He doesn't he doesn't push back against Joe when Joe basically says, "I need you to leave right Mm. now." Again, that would have been a perfect opportunity for some histrionics and like, you don't understand me. I, I, I. Uh, But he doesn't do that. He just can't, well, not calmly because he's not calm at the moment, but he accepts the, the decision and, and, and moves on. That seems really interesting. It's a really long scene. Paul Racy is heartbreaking in it. Mm. Uh, and Joe's decision is a very complex one, I would say. And it's, it's, it's grounded in a, in a sense of possibly even betrayal a little bit. That he yeah. feels a little bit insulted by the fact that Ruben is denigrating his deafness by rushing out and getting these implants at the first opportunity. He He's looking out, of course, for his brethren. He's looking out for his community as well. And he's makes, he makes a very, very good point. How do you think they would feel if, after embracing Ruben as one of their own, uh, bringing him into their community, and all of a sudden he turns up with these implants, which is basically saying, it's an, it, it could be seen as insulting. It could be seen yeah. as saying mm. your deafness is does not make you a complete person. I need more than that. Yeah. But he also says things like in the in that sequence he does talk about life being cruel, and then you could argue that that his decision is cruel—that he is turfing Reuben out on the street. So there's there's a real there's multiple layers going on here. Yeah, what, I, I think cruel
2: take? is is a bit harsh. Um, ironically, uh, or non-ironically, um, I, I think I think it is sort of tough love. It is very much having having a rule that you stick to, and I think that is something that Ruben understands from his experience. He's clearly been through sort of you know twelve steps, AA, everything else, or NA, I guess Narcotics Anonymous. So he he I think he understands that need to have rules that define your community, that define yourself and and i think that i think that's the kind of the tragedy of the scene is i think that they both understand exactly where the other is coming from but they can't accept that i think you know joe is absolutely right in in that he has been trying to tell ruben this entire time that you know there is a deaf culture that he can be part of that he is now invited into that has been welcoming him with open arms and that this appears to be a betrayal of that welcome of that Of that acceptance of that chance for a new start. So there is a sense of pride in that culture. There is a sense of, you know, uh, defensiveness, if you like, of that culture. Um, But there's also a sense of, you know, as I say, tough love or or protectiveness um, going on here that he has to stick to his rules, no matter how much he might like Ruben on a personal level, which I think he does. And I Mm. think, you know, that the same in reverse. I think Ruben understands that. He has. He appreciates that he has been welcomed. He appreciates that Joe has his rules, and yet he cannot at that moment abide by them. He can't he can't accept that, you know, that this is his life and that that, that is enough um, at that moment. And I think maybe after the film ends, maybe maybe he comes to a different conclusion. I don't know. But 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 mm-hmm. yeah, for me the tragedy of the scene is that they each understand each other completely, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean that they can accept the other's choice
1: makes me intrigued to see, I mean, this film does not need it, but it makes me intrigued to see what a sequel to this film might look like. Uh, <laughs> but I think in that scene, just the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the mm. few or the or one. Or the one. <laughs> uh, in that scene. And uh, you know, Joe quite likely has to look out for his community, yeah. uh, which given what Ruben has done, Ruben can no longer be a part of. It's very understandable from all parties. So. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: That's just that's fanfic. This for for a second. Do you think he? Mm-hmm. Uh, do you think he now leans into this moment of stillness? He never turns the implants back on. Goes back, reconciles with Joe. Ends up working in the community. Or what do you think? What do you think is next for R Ruben?
2: I mean, people do, uh, you know, and and have very fulfilled and and full lives as a result. I think also that you know, as we say, there may be a way to to keep working on the implants to to find some kind of middle ground where he doesn't have 100% hearing, but he also has maybe enough to get by in the hearing world, but also you know, continues growing his appreciation of, of the deaf community and deaf culture. There might be some kind of middle way there for him.
0: Because I worry about him a little bit. Cause he's, yeah, I, I don't, what's he going to do for a living? How's he going to make money? He's in Paris. What's, he doesn't speak the language. He holds no currency.
2: Yeah, but like he's a hardworking guy. You know, we've seen that he's an organized guy. We saw that just like literally in the scenes of him making breakfast. You know, this is a guy who pays attention to detail, who who works hard at stuff. He's already gotten himself so far. He's already come back from heroin addiction. This is a guy who can do stuff. I'm in weirdly. I'm not worried about him in that sense. I, I know he has spent all his money and you know burned some bridges and you know is currently in a bit of a hole for for cash and for everything else. But I just. I I just trust to his desire to live. I suppose. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I, I'm not worried about that. I, I don't know quite where he ends up in in terms of between deaf culture and hearing culture, but I I just feel yeah. like wherever whatever he he decides to do, he'll put him whole, his whole self into it, and he will do it.
1: That I agree with. I'm not sure if Joe takes him back because even if he you know discards the implants, that decision is not something you can never take back, and. If Joe, I mean, I'm not sure if Joe would tell the rest of his community why Ruben is left, but regardless, Joe would know. Um, I feel like Joe would take
2: him back. If he decided to give up on the implants, I think he would. I think he's a, he seems like a merciful dude to me.
1: Like, yeah, yeah. Maybe I'm being a bit
2: utopian, I don't know.
1: I just think like, I'm not even sure if Ruben would want to go back because while obviously he, you know, did end up really sort of making a place for himself in mm. the community. He was always sort of had a mind to, you know, yeah. the, the, the the implants never left his mind. Yeah, I think he mm. needs to figure out on his own a new identity outside of the community. I agree with that. Um, yeah. So I'm not sure exactly what that is. Again, sequel. Um, <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I would like to see it. Would watch. What would the sequel be
0: called? <laughs> Sounds of Metal or Sound of Metals? <laughs> <laughs>
3: To sign too metal? I don't
0: know. <laughs> We've got to retire on this joke, have we? Got to... <laughs> never. 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 <laughs> You'll take it from my cold dead
2: hands. Um, Sound a metal,
0: electric boogaloo.
2: <laughs> but but I I think you're right, Amon, that he would have to make a sort of new identity for himself and and figure I think that's clear from the from the whole story of the film that he has to figure out who he is without these crutches. Without mm. the crutch of Lou, without the crutch of Joe, he needs to figure himself out completely on his own. Um mm. that said, I don't think. I th- I don't think Joe would leave him out were he to come back and say, I want to f- throw myself into this wholeheartedly this time. Last time I was holding back, this time I'm all in. I don't mm. think Joe would be the kind of person who turned somebody away who said that. But I'm not saying that's necessarily what happens. But but mm. I do think that the moment we leave him on is is a moment kind of caught between two worlds. And I think that's the path that he walks, at least in the short term, to figure out figure out exactly what is important to him and whether he needs these implants and and what he's willing to put up with, you know, if to to work with them and whether or not he'd be better off without them. I feel like that's the moment he's in. Hmm.
0: Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Or if not, we'll wrap it up. Well,
2: I I would say just, um, if people are like, have been interested in the film, I would, you know, I would learn more about deaf culture. And I know it's something that I've been trying to learn more about and educate myself on a little bit. There's a couple of people on Twitter who I follow who speak up for this regularly. So, um, at Pity the Backseat mm-hmm. is one, and Charlotte Little at A Little Outlook is another, and they are both very, very um, keen, very up on these issues. They follow all these issues and uh, will make you a bit more aware of it as well, which I think we could all do with being, because I think there's a lot of, you know, unconscious um, bias against deaf people and and a failure to consider deaf people. And, um, you know, just little things like asking your local cinema if they have caption screenings for deaf people things like that might, we could probably all do and, and help out a little bit more so uh so yeah so just follow some deaf a- activists and um let's try and change the world a bit and make it a bit easier
1: yeah. i I just I love how well this is done in the award season this is not the typical type of movie which is nominated for best picture um but I love that uh it has you know it's, it's, it's worthy of many more awards than just Uh, sound design, which obviously it's extremely worthy of. Uh, But I I just love how well this is done in the award season. It's very much deserved it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Indeed. Indeedly beadly, as they say. Uh, and I think on that note, that will be that for our Sound of Metal spoilers special. Hope you guys have enjoyed it. And thanks, of course, once again to Darius Martyr for giving up so much of his time. As ever, thank you so much for subscribing. It really does mean a lot. Your support means a lot to us, especially in these difficult times. If you don't already listen to the regular Empire podcast, it's out every single Friday and is one heck of a listen. And I thoroughly recommend it. But anyway, enough of my prattling on. It is goodbye from my two colleagues of such lethal cunning squad cast names, Rage Against the Silence, Amon Warman. Peace. It is goodbye from Martyr 1, Helen O'Hara.
2: Toodaloo.
0: I see you didn't go for, let Mardar.:
2: I was genuinely very, very tempted to go for that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was, I was worried I couldn't type the Scottish accent properly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> There's been a murder,
2: and I mean, murder one was, or sorry, murder one was yes. uh, all our introduction, my introduction to Stanley Tucci. So, right there, oh, that's one nice. of the greatest TV nice. shows ever.
0: The Tooch.
2: the Tooch. Do you remember he was the bad guy in season one? Oh. Was he? Oh, well, or was he? That's the question. He's the guy who's on trial for murder, but did he do it? Who knows? I guess he did. Maybe. He did, didn't
0: he? Yes, okay. I don't remember. Uh, well, Probably. there we go. This is not a Murder One supporter <laughs> special, although it sounds <laughs> like we should do one because Helen can't remember a goddamn thing about that show. Oh God, so it'd be it quite so good a fun record. Uh, anyway, it is also goodbye for me. Always bet on black gammon. I'm off to smash a living shit out of a donut. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Bye.